Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. I'm glad you could join us tonight because I have a very special book we're going to be talking about, an author who is spectacular. I want to first thank Ken Quiethawk for his intro. He's a native storyteller. Please search him out on the Internet. Just Google Native Storytellers or Ken Quiethawk, and you'll find an amazing man who is who is uh, using an amazing tradition to teach wisdom and knowledge and cosmology to generations. Um, I think a more profound way to teach, actually, than the written word, but those of us who are digging into all sorts of things have to go for the written word. And the book tonight that we're going to be talking about is is at the top of my list of favorites for, for at least the last decade. We have um, We have James Tabor with us, and the book that we're going to be going into tonight is is one of a, a part of a trilogy. It's called the, D, the Jesus Dynasty, The Hidden History of Jesus, His Royal Family, and the Birth of Christianity. In this book, a biblical, a biblical scholar, James Tabor, brings us closer and even and ever, than ever into the historical Jesus. Jesus, as we know, was the son of Mary, a young woman who became pregnant before her marriage to a man named Joseph. The Gospels tell us that Jesus had four brothers and two sisters, all of whom probably had a different father than his. He joined a messianic movement begun by his relative, John the Baptizer, whom he regarded as his teacher and a great prophet. John and Jesus together filled the roles of the two messiahs who were expected at the time, John as a priestly descendant of Aaron and Jesus as a royal descendant of David. Together they preached the coming of the kingdom of God. 
theirs was an apocalyptic movement that expected God to establish his kingdom on earth as described by the prophets. The two messiahs lived in a time of turmoil as the historical land of Israel was dominated by the powerful Roman Empire. Fierce Jewish rebellions against Rome occurred during Jesus' lifetime. This is a book that absolutely will change our understanding of one of the most critical moments in history. James has studied the earliest surviving documents of Christianity for more than 30 years and has participated in important archaeological excavations in Israel. Drawing on his background, he reconstructs for us the movement that sought the spiritual, social, political redemption of the Jews, a movement led by one family. This book offers an alternative version, an alternative version of Christian origins, one that takes us closer than ever to Jesus and his family and followers. Welcome. You there, James? Yeah, you went dead on me. Are you okay? I did go dead, but I'm alive again. (laughs) I... Uh, I have come back. Mm-hmm. I have been resurrected. Um, yeah. No, I'm, this is, I'm with this you. Is, this is one of my favorite books, and, and for, for a number of reasons. One of them is actually that it makes, it makes Jesus a more personal person to us. Um, you know, though he walked on water, I mean, he also had feet of clay like the rest of us. And it makes him so much more human and so much more more easy to relate to and understand what he went through and and what he became i mean you've done a brilliant job of of beefing him up so that he is not no longer a name on a page but rather a person in reality yeah well i really appreciate that i'm glad you found it that way lots of readers have. I I wanted it to be a kind of a page turner, so to speak, even though it is not a fiction book. It's uh, nonfiction, and it's supposed to be the historical Jesus. What, what do we know about him? It's a typical legal question, you know, the law question. What do we know? How do we know it? And that's what I tried to do in the book. I waited 30 years to write this book. You don't write, in my field of Christian origins, a lot of us end up doing a Jesus book because that's what we've worked on all our lives. But you don't do it when you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. I did it when I was 60. And I really wouldn't change that much now that I'm uh, another 15 years older because I, I came to a pretty settled view of this is the best we can do at this time with the evidence we have. And uh, I hope your listeners will give it a try if they haven't heard of it. And I think they're going to find it, as you said, quite uh, revolutionary. And you'll feel that you might have touched Jesus as the Jewish messianic leader that he was, and especially in his own time and place. And that's where the archaeology comes in. Uh, I have excavated at, say, like I have a chapter, as you know, called The Forgotten City of Sepphoris. And everybody listening now is probably saying, yeah, it's forgotten, okay, because I've never heard of it. 
And it turns out <laughs> that Nazareth, whom everybody's heard of, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, is a little village four miles south of Sepphoris, which is the major urban urban capital of all of Galilee. Now, who knows that, you know? And if you look in the Bible, the old Bibles, you know, the maps in the back, they'd have Nazareth like a big city with a star, you know, like it's the capital, and nobody even knew Nazareth. You remember the Pharisees say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it is a <laughs> suburb of the major capital where Herod Antipas had his palace. And so uh, just that sort of revelation that, you know, people haven't realized, it just opens your eyes. It would be like if, if someone from Chicago was, because I went to the University of Chicago, and say you're from, you know, Park Forest, which is south of Chicago. It's a suburb. And you say, oh, that person's from Park Forest. And you say, oh, yeah, but what about Chicago just to the north? Oh, Chicago? I never heard of that. I've heard of Park Forest, you know, like 3,000 years from now. And that's yeah. where we are. And you'll find in the book all kinds of things like that. You know, Jesus had a brother, James. My students, when I teach that, they they always say, Dr. Tabor, wait, wait, are you saying he had a brother named James? I never heard of him. I've heard of the apostle fisherman James. No, no, not not him. And yet he's mentioned in numerous sources. There's a whole chapter on James. And even John the Baptist, as you mentioned in your intro, how important. You know what Jesus said about John that just blows my mind? Among those born of women... There is none greater than John. And then the scribes added, but he who is in the kingdom is greater than all. Well, of course, in the kingdom, but he's talking about here on earth right now. And he's looking to John as his teacher. And who knows that? People don't talk about that because the New Testament, by the time it's written, you have to play John down. For Jesus, he's just like the guy that comes on and goes, okay, the main event is now starting. Here's Jesus. When actually (laughs) Jesus is following John. And do you remember that passage where it says, uh, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus gives this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, what if that is the prayer? They say, teach us as John taught his disciples. I understand that to mean, what was that prayer that John taught his disciples? And then he teaches them the Our Father, which many, many people know by heart. What if that comes from John? I think it's possible. So, yeah, there's just so many things. I could mention a dozen more, but I know you, I want you to lead the interview. But, yeah, it's (laughs) just, uh, it's so exciting. You know, when I went, I opened the book with my, trip to the Holy Land at age 16, and, and we'd, my father was in the military, and we'd come back from uh, two years in Iran, and then I'd lived in France. I went to boarding school in France, just a high school kid, and Dad said, let's do, you know, before we go back to the States, we're over here, let's see, let's go to Jerusalem, and we did. And I'd grown up, you know, pious young boy, Christian boy growing up, and uh, I was so intrigued. I thought, so this is the place. This is where it really happened. And then the guide said, well, actually, most of what happened is 20 to 30 feet below our, you know, the street level. And I said, what? Is there anything 
from his time. And when I was there, that was 1962, there, there was nothing exposed yet from the time of Jesus. Guess what now? I'm going to do a oh. tour in October, and anybody that wants to join me, including you, Barbara, can go. Oh. I will show you 20 places where you can stand on stone streets, staircases, where he undoubtedly walked because of all that has been uncovered since. And so in the book, I try to always give you anything that's been discovered that will enlighten the text. I see archaeology as like a, a fifth gospel. You know, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then if you want to add Thomas, it would be, you know, a fifth and maybe a sixth gospel would be archaeology. Well, I think also, I mean, you know, you you also were involved in the excavation of the Telepot tomb, which um, is is another amazing discovery that has so little has been mentioned about it, and yet... It's so important. Um, you know, it's, it's yes, and basic. What it, we, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, no, I was no. going to say we didn't. It was found in 1980 with by bulldozers uh, yeah. that were building a condo. It's south of Jerusalem. And, uh, of course, it's the names that are so significant because we've got a a Joseph and a Mary and a Jesus, son of Joseph, possibly a James. Let's wait and talk about that later. You asked me about, because I think James, son of Joseph, was also in there, the, the ossuary that uh, is unprovidence. And uh-huh. I think we can prove now that it was in there from the latest uh, soil analysis that's been done. So we didn't find it. And uh, But later, the team that I was with, Simka, Jacobovici, and I, and some others, uh, we located it under a concrete block in a neighborhood now where people just walk along the sidewalks between condos and they don't even know that they're passing by a tomb because it's been covered over. But we got permission to lift the cover and go in it for the first time in 2005 uh, when I was working on the book. And so I've been in the tomb so it was excavated in 1980, but very hastily over just three-day period. And then it was just warehoused, and nobody really picked up on it, and everybody said, well, the names are common, so we don't need to really focus. Yeah, there's a lot of Jesuses, and there's even one other Jesus, son of Joseph, that was found in another tomb. But the problem we began to see as we consulted with statistical experts at the University of Toronto and so forth, it's the cluster that counts. See, in the Talpio tomb, there's no name that doesn't fit. There's six names they all fit. Jesus' brother, Yose, that was a nickname. His name is Joseph, but Jesus called him Yose. It's in the Gospels. And guess what is written on the ossuary? Yose. Very, very rare name. Uh, yeah, as, as a nickname. And so... Uh, we started looking at the clusters. So it would, I could give you an example. It'd be like if, if the Beatles were all buried together, which, you know, they're not even all deceased, thank God. But yeah. unfortunately, George yeah. and John. And, but if they're all buried together, you would say, well, Paul and George and John, the, these are really common British names. And then you'd say, uh, Ringo? Hmm. <laughs> the cluster of Paul, George, and John and Ringo 
could that be the Beatles? And then you would go from there. But what happens in Jerusalem, the, the Ringo is Yose because it's a very rare nickname. We only find it three other places on all the ossuaries in Jerusalem. Ossuaries are these bone boxes, you know, that they would put the bones in after a year, and then they sometimes yeah. even more than one person, and they would put the name on the side. And uh, But it's the cluster that counts. And, and it, when you put this together, I've said often to my critics who say, well, the names are common. That's what you'll always hear. There were a lot of Jesuses. Well, I know my facts. We're going to talk about the other book, the second book, The Jesus Discovery, in June. And yeah. I have looked at every ossuary that has been found, and there are over 1,200 of them. And I've studied all the names, and they're not dozens. They're 19 Jesuses, and we know where the others came from. And guess what? No other tomb fits with this cluster of names. So you would, yeah, you might have another Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew, but it wouldn't have a Mary, a Joseph, a Yose, a Mariamne, and the uh, and a Maria. It wouldn't have these other names, you see. So it's the cluster that counts. And uh, I've told I was on NPR when this first came out, and I forgot who I was talking to. I know it was a you know well known. Uh, NPR correspondent, and she asked me about that. So I said, I said, let me give you a test on national public radio. And this was going to all their stations. I said, my name is James. My wife's name is Lori. And I have a son, Seth and Eve. My guess is there's not another family in America of four with that cluster of names, even though James and Lori is pretty common, Seth not as much, maybe Eve not as much. But again, it's the cluster, and all you need uh-huh. is one name wrong, and then it doesn't work. You know, like you have, oh, here's a James, a Lori, a Sally, and a George. Oh, not that, you see? So uh, I think it is the tomb of Jesus, but Jesus of Nazareth, I think it's the Jesus family tomb. But we'll talk about that more in June. But where it really impacts this book, the Jesus Dynasty, is the empty tomb. You know, if you find the tomb of Jesus, but the Gospels report the tomb is empty, then how are you going to reconcile that? Do you just throw the Gospels out? And what I suggest in the book, I shouldn't give away the secret, but I will, uh, is that he was buried temporarily in an unfinished tomb, which the Gospels say, near the place of crucifixion. So that's not the permanent tomb. Of course it's found empty Sunday morning because they moved the body after Passover. What else would you do with the corpse if you're going to bury it? And so the Tapio tomb would be the permanent burial. And so I'm not knocking the empty tomb, but resurrection has nothing to do with reviving dead bodies and dust and when people... You know, the Bible even talks about those who are lost at sea will be raised from the dead. Well, you know it doesn't mean we're going to go find their body parts, you know, in the sea. And yet with Jesus, somehow people can't believe in resurrection unless you have a body. And Paul says, you know, that's the physical body. We're not interested in the physical body. It goes back to the earth. So why does it matter if we did find 
to me, it's a wonderful thing. If I was in the tomb of Jesus, I can't tell you, Barbara, how I felt. You know, and I don't know for sure. I'm not dogmatic. But as I sat there, I closed my eyes, and I just thought, oh, my breath, you know. Is this the place where they lovingly buried him and his brother and his mother and uh, his brother Yosei and so forth? And I think it might be. But either way, he was reburied. Uh, One of my greatest critics, I'm not going to name the person, I'm not going to say he or she, but someone who's really against this Taupio tomb theory, a well-known person, uh, this person said, well, I think Jesus was buried in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Dr. Tabor, and why are you making it this other tomb? And First of all, I don't think the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is even that first tomb, you know, where it was temporary. But we can get yeah. into that later. But but uh, I said, well, and, and this person's Jewish, by the way. I need to point that out so they don't even believe Jesus was raised. And I said, oh, do you? And I tried to be nice, but I knew I had her. Oh, I let out, I let out the, the gender. I knew I had her. Yeah. And I said, uh, this was in a conference. I said, so is that tomb empty? And she goes, well, of course it's empty. And I said, oh, it's empty. So he's either raised or they moved the body. So if they moved the body, wouldn't it be in another tomb? And she just <laughs> just sat there. I thought it was like a, a, a silent moment. Well, because, I think w- you know, as a Jew, she didn't think he was raised, and therefore he was moved, and you don't throw him in a ditch, right? This is the Messiah. So uh, why would it be a surprise when you bulldoze all of the tombs around Jerusalem, 3,000 tombs have been opened, why would it be a surprise that you would come across the tomb of Jesus and Mary? Uh, I think Mary also is is buried there as his widowed mother. Well, now that's, you know, you bring Mary up, and that's that's a very important part of this entire story, obviously. And I think that, that the, the fact that there were four, other, four brothers and two sisters besides Jesus, and I, I think the story of Mary is so important because it, it just it, it, makes the, it, it makes the whole story so, so much more real that, that she was pregnant before she married and 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 yet there 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 are four other brothers and two sisters and the bible doesn't talk about them at all and i think what what blew my mind was that um not only did they not do they not talk about it but that after jesus it was james and after james it was um simon and simon, so that, simon. so that yeah so that that's why i call so it the that, dynasty right yeah absolutely and and it's kind of like the Bible doesn't seem to talk about any of this, and yet, you know, she was a good Jewish wife and mother, and she had many yes, other children. Absolutely. And and it's it's and, and then the the element of um, the fact that she was pregnant. Um, I, I've talked to a number of nurses and a couple of doctors, and um, in my mind. The, the divinity of Jesus is never in question because the spirit, the soul, 
metaphysically speaking, doesn't enter the body until uh, a, a short period of time before, um, you know, after conception. So, so the fact that she was pregnant just gave a physical um, body, a, a physical um, mm-hmm. receptacle for the spirit that was divinely implanted within her doesn't take away from the story at all that she was pregnant. Right. Well, people, people, we don't know the circumstances. What we know from our Gospels is she's pregnant and Joseph is not the father. And that's clear. And they all say that. We only have two birth accounts, Matthew and Luke, and they both agree. And then Joseph decides not to expose her and so people, I think a rumor got out that he might not be the father. But remember, it says in Matthew, he was told in a dream, don't shame her. You take her, uh-huh. you marry her, and make the child yours. So he's called Jesus, son of Joseph. That's the Talpio Tumashuar. That's the inscription, Jesus, son of Joseph. And by the way, it looks almost identical to the James Oshuary. They use the same craftsman, I t- I'm telling you. But anyway, we'll get to that okay. in a minute. But yes, okay. I want to, I love Mary. I, you know, I, my next book is on Mary. As I told you, we were, we were talking the other day, and I said, my career is to rehabilitate the, the real story of John the Baptist, Jesus, James the brother, Mary the mother, and Mary Magdalene. If you want to call her wife, lover, companion, I don't care. But he was so close to her. The proof, Uh she leads the burial party to wash the naked body of Jesus. And you don't just have some woman do that who is not. She's with the mother, with the sister, Salome and Maria, as they prepare his body for burial. So I want to rebuild. Now, Mary Magdalene, as you know, and you move in these metaphysical circles, she, she, she still hasn't been rehabilitated, unfortunately, from these horrible stories about her being a prostitute and all that. Oh, but yeah. We have finally gotten dozens of books and many feminist scholars, and, you know, they, they call them mag heads, Magdalene heads, you know, <laughs> because they are working on Mary. But poor Mary, the mother of Jesus... She's the best-known woman and the least-known woman in the world. Think about it. And yet oh, she's known as a nun, as, as the queen of heaven, as the sort of co-regent with Jesus, you know, with the stars at her head and so forth. And that's theology. If people believe that, that's fine. But I'm telling you, I want to give her back her life. And I hope if she, were, if she could ever know it, she would be thankful if you have seven children, she might have had three daughters. We, we're not sure only. It just says sisters, but we think there might have been two or three. But if you've had uh-huh. those children, I bet many of your listeners have children. How would you like your history to be written later? We change your religion. You're not a Jew. You're a nun. You're a Christian. You're Catholic. We take away your children. You never had sex with your husband ever in your whole life. You never had sex with anybody because you're so holy, you can only be a heavenly goddess. What happened to your real life that you lived day by day, getting up in the morning, working, and then she loses her husband early on, 
And now she's a widowed single mother. We talk a lot today about single mothers, and, you know, we're trying to recognize that in our culture and how hard that is. Mary was a single mother with these boys, and she raised them. And this whole adage, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, I'm not going to give Jesus credit for anything before I would give it to his mother. Who taught Jesus if somebody on the street said to him, you know, I don't like you or hit him or whatever, and he came home crying. I'm talking about three, four-year-old Jesus. And Mary said, Jesus, we're different than other people. The kingdom of God will come with love and peace. You just think about him and what good you can do to him. You know, you're teaching this little kid the ways of God. And well, yeah, everybody and wants to a- make it like Jesus just suddenly got this from heaven and as if his <laughs> mother was nothing. And then why would James also, you read the book of James. I don't know if you've read it lately. Pick it up. You'll think you're reading Jesus. These two boys are so close. And uh-huh. they teach. It sounds exactly like Jesus. He says, love your enemy. Don't be angry. Don't swear. He says, it's like the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. Well, and too, it, so it, she's it, so it, important. It, it's interesting, too, that after... Jesus was gone, you know, everybody says, well, Peter was the leader, but no, he wasn't. James was the leader, and after James, you know, and, and, and Jesus' other brother, after James, so that yeah. so that there was a dynasty. They did defer that way, and, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that people don't know about this. And You know, it's so kind he, of hidden. It's hidden in plain view because um, it's not front and center, the brothers are mentioned, they're named in Mark 6, verse 3, and then they're mentioned like different times, it'll say, and Jesus and his mother and brothers did this and that. But if you, I want to mention this specifically because some of your listeners might think, yeah, well, where do you get this from some source we don't know? No, it's in your Bible. Acts chapter 15, Paul and Peter go up to Jerusalem to decide should the Gentiles join the movement, the Jesus movement? Because in Judaism, Gentiles could join without converting. They're called God-fearers. You don't have to convert. You can go to a synagogue today. You don't have to be Jewish to go to a synagogue. You tell the rabbi, I'm a God-fearer. I believe in the Hebrew God and just want to worship with the Jewish people. You're perfectly welcome at any synagogue in the world. You don't have to convert. So they come up, and Peter speaks in favor of accepting the Gentiles, Paul speaks, and then James, it doesn't even say who he is. It says, and then James stood up and said, I've listened to you both, and my decision is, and then he gives his decision that we should not trouble it. Now, who, what do you mean my decision is? Who is this man? You want to say, who's this mass man? (laughs) So the the writer of Acts, uh, we call him Luke, but Luke Acts, He wants to mute the human family of Jesus in favor of Paul. We know that from reading Acts. It's basically about Paul. But he can't get rid of James. So when he has to tell the story about the decision, he puts James in. And then at the end of Acts, Acts 21, Paul goes back to Jerusalem after all his travels. And guess who he goes to see? First thing, he's in town. And he went in and met with James because he's the leader. So it is uh-huh. there. The people, most people read it, think 
I don't even know who that James is. I don't think they notice, but he's there. He's hidden. And if you read the book of James, it's real clear that he's in charge. He he writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So uh, it's really important. And even the pregnancy, my position on the pregnancy is a woman has the secrets of her heart and whoever she was with is her business. Remember, marriages were arranged in those days. And Joseph yeah. was probably older. All our sources seem to indicate he was an older man. And he died because he just disappears by the time Jesus is 12. So we can't judge uh, who this was. We can talk about, uh, if you want to get into it, and I do have a whole section on this, uh, Yeah. that we have a name of a person, Pantera, P-A-N-T-E-R-A, uh, and it's a family name in the family of Mary and Joseph. Uh, so possibly, you know, was it a cousin or somebody of her family that she fell in love with? But I just this idea that she was raped by a Roman soldier or something like that. You know, this is nobody knows that. And uh, however she became pregnant, she ended up being told in a dream or actually a vision by an angel, Gabriel, that which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what you said. You know, in other words, Mary, don't worry. And that's what Joseph is told. It's of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does of the Holy Spirit mean? Does it mean God made her pregnant? Like the Holy Spirit made a woman pregnant? We don't have any record of that in the Hebrew Bible. But we have God blessing unions, right? So by the Holy Spirit means by the will of God. This pregnancy is a blessed event by the will of God. And I'm sure there are people listening who have had children out of wedlock, and they would understand what that means, that you can have a very sacred event, uh, whether you're married or not. You know, I'm not – you see what I'm saying. You know, people have their stories. I mean, we – we can't always go by a conventional Victorian idea of a couple, perfect couple with no problems, and they get married and have their kids, and they never have problems, and the grandkids never have problems, and nobody ever gets pregnant. And uh, I just think uh, we have to honor her as a virtuous woman, but a normal Jewish woman who had a child. And I did go hunting for the father. And we can talk about that. But I want you to lead me through the book, and we'll get to that whenever you're ready. I I would really like to also, um, you know, there were other children. And Mary obviously had to have a husband because being unmarried with a a child is not acceptable. So so who, who is the father of all the other kids? Well, the easy. Let me let me back up a little uh, because people will be, you know, people who come from various traditions will be thinking of some other questions, and I'll, I'll lead into that. The okay. Roman Catholics, first of all, Mary, in theology by the third century A.D. two hundreds, Mary can't have sex ever. She can't have sex to have Jesus, and she can never have sex at all because she's the Holy Mother of God, and they developed this false sense of piety 
that sexuality is somehow tainted. It's this Hellenistic kind of dualism that the body's lower and the spirit's higher, which is true, but it, the body's blessed in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, you know? And so yeah. that's where it started is she can't have sex at all. Well, then who are these brothers? And so what you have is an idea Two ideas. One is that they were children of Joseph from a previous marriage. So he brings the kids in. Mary's just the little 16-year-old virgin, and, and she never has sex with him. So now there are the brothers and sisters added to the family, but they were Joseph's, and he's an older man previously married. That's the Greek Orthodox view. Then the Roman Uh Catholics said, wait a minute, Joseph can't have sex either because he's the holy father of the holy family. (laughs) So they can't be his kids because then he would be having sex. So now we have to make Joseph celibate, Mary celibate for life. We're talking about perpetual celibacy from birth to death. So whose would they be? Oh, they would be Joseph's brother's kids. Okay. His name is Clophus. Okay, and uh, that way they would become, what would they be, uh, cousins? Yeah, cousins of, yeah, of, of like an uncle. And, uh-huh. But they're not Marys. But the simple view of, if you read Mark 6, verse 3, is this not Jesus, son of Mary? Are not his brothers with us, James, Joseph, Simon, Jude, and his sisters? That's the natural reading of the text. But what clinches it is Matthew says, Joseph did not sleep with Mary until she brought forth Jesus. Look at the word until, until. And this has become a huge problem for all of these interpretations. And they do all kinds of gymnastics to get around it. But if I tell you, Barbara, so-and-so didn't sleep with so-and-so until this, you'd go, oh, and then he did, right? Well, of course, I just told you that. But see, people, it's just this, I I call it a misplaced sense of holiness. It's misplaced because it is, yes, it's a holy family, but it's a large family. Picture the household with these kids running around and fixing dinner and talking and growing up and interacting. We're missing this with Jesus. He's like this lone ranger on a hillside, and she's the celibate woman that doesn't ever experience real married life you know, in childbirth and the sick child that's your own that you stay up all night with. And I want her to be real, and I want her to be remembered for what I know she was. And also, she's Jewish. She's not a Christian. She's a Jew and went to the synagogue and kept the Sabbath and so forth. And Jesus loved his mother. And there's some passages where people think it's disrespectful. The main one you might know, it just gets me that people misread uh, there's a bunch of people in a house in Capernaum. It's Peter's house, and it's so. And by the way, archaeologically, it's been discovered. And when I take uh-huh. tours to Israel, I take you to the house. It's been discovered. You can see the first century house. You can't go in it because they have bars up, but you can look at it. And so there's all these people in, and Jesus heals a paralyzed man, and you can't get in. And the brothers, mother and brothers, have been out doing something. They live there. They live with Peter. The whole family has moved there. To uh, it's the base of their their you know work of the movement. It's the first headquarters of the church, I guess you could say, Peter's house. And 
somebody says, your mother and brothers are outside. And he goes, who are my mother and brothers? And then he waves his hand to the crowd and he says, those who hear the word of God are my mother, brothers, sisters, and so forth. People read that today. Almost everybody that reads it says he's putting down his physical family and exalting his spiritual family. Not at all. They live there. He wants the people that are obstructing them from getting in to feel welcome. It's mi casa, su casa. He's saying to them, all of, oh, mom and the kids and the brothers are there. That's fine. They live here. But you're all my brothers. You belong here. You don't have to leave right now and get out. You see what he's saying? It's actually positive, not negative. Uh, And it expands the family into a cosmic family of those who hear the word of God, we're all one as a big family. So it's a beautiful teaching, and it doesn't put down the mother. And the other one is the making of the wine. Remember that story where he makes the water oh. into wine? And That's like a says, yeah. And it's translated, "What if, she asked him to help, and he says, what have I to do with you? That's how it's translated, which sounds kind of like a smartass talking to his mom. What am I to do yeah. And that isn't at all what it means in Greek. It's like the things of me are the things of you, are not the things of me, the things of you. And she was concerned about the wedding because I think it's the wedding of James, the brother, probably. Uh Some people think it's Jesus' wedding, but I doubt if it's his wedding since he's being asked about it, but it could be. But it's definitely a family wedding. And they did move to Canaan at one point. Uh, if you check uh, the Gospels, they've actually lived at Canaan. So it's a family wedding. So let's say it's James. We don't know because it's – then she's – you know, if any mother that's uh, had one of their kids married and is kind of in charge of it, she's asking him for help. And he says, the things of me are the things of you, Mom. If, don't worry. He, he's basically saying, don't stress. It's Okay. And then he does his miracle. So those are the two negative stories right there. And there aren't any others. And everybody goes, oh, well, maybe she didn't really believe in him. Are you kidding me? I mean, she's at the Well, she followed him. She followed him all over. I mean, there was a large. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I love the story about how they would go to one place and they would try to, you know, sort of regroup and everything and, and the crowds would become so so large they would have to get on a boat and go to another place yep. where they could stay for right. a while and then the crowds would follow him in there and um and and his family, you know, his mother and, and sisters and probably brothers too, were were all in that group. They 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 followed him. But I think what what really amazed me and and you know I've seen it in other places but you bring it you bring it full 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 term here is that that John and John the Baptist and Jesus um they were a pair they they at yes. some point at some point they they felt that they were fulfilling a prophecy of the two messiahs and and uh, John the Baptist really did teach Jesus, and at some point they realized that they were the fulfillment of prophecy, and they were they were not out to create. I think this is a big big point here. They were not out to create 
Christianity. They were out to bring a message to the Jews. And um, I, I, you know, so many people think that that they were they were they were trying to to start a new religion, and and they were absolutely not trying to start a new religion. Right. They were reviving. Um, I want to go back to who who was the father of the kids in a minute, but so remind okay. me to get back to that. But about the two messiahs, uh, you know, when I published this book in two oh six. It got massive publicity. It was just, I, I couldn't even believe how much it got. I was on Good Morning America, 2020, Nightline. Martin Bashir came and interviewed me in Israel for 2020 and a cover of the U.S. News and World Report and so forth. And I thought, well, the controversy is going to be uh, Pantera, you know, the father yeah. you know, of Jesus, or the Taupio tomb. Uh, you know, and that's what they're going to ask me. And sometimes they would, you know, I did hundreds of interviews and it was published in 25 languages. I did a tour of Europe, cover of magazines in Germany. and It was all over the place, uh, bestsellers in most countries. And so guess what? I go on, uh, uh, it was Nightline, I think. And they said, uh, Dr. Tabor, you say that there were two messiahs this is so shocking to people. Christians yes. believe in Christ, one Messiah. And I thought, boy, I've got it easy tonight. I don't have to talk about Pantera <laughs> or the tomb. And I said, well, you know, you got to read the prophecy. Zechariah chapter 6 talks about the Messiah will sit on his throne. That's the, the, the line of David. And there will be next to him an anointed priest by his throne, and peaceful understanding shall be t- be between them both. Both. That's two. And also mm-hmm. Zechariah 4 talks about the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the earth. One is a priest, one is a king. And so John the Baptist inaugurates the movement. He's six months older than Jesus you know Elizabeth, his mother, and Mary are related, probably mm-hmm. closely related, because when she discovers her pregnancy, she flees Nazareth, doesn't want to start any rumors. It says she flees in haste to the hill country of Judea and visits uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist. And she stays there until John is born. So she's actually present. Here's a new vision for you. You know, I hope to do a, a series someday, you know, a TV series, not a movie. I'd rather go with a scripted series, six-part series on probably Mary and bring all this in, but on Netflix or HBO, working on that now. But I would have Mary and Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth's having John, and Mary would be attending at the birth. Imagine that. You know, this, these people are bonded. And remember, they go to Jerusalem every year, the, the Galilee families. All of Galilee goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. They go for Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. They go for Shavuot, the day of Pentecost. Three times a year, they all go down there to the temple. And that's when they would see their cousins and their, you know. So John and, you got to picture John and Jesus they're not strangers that meet at the Jordan River on the day he's baptized. 
They basically have grown up together. I bet they spent hundreds and hundreds of hours together. And right near Einkerim, where John lived, we know where he lived, the village of Einkerim, we've excavated, and it's in the book, the John the Baptist Cave, which has the earliest drawing of John on the wall. And it's a baptismal cave that was used for mass baptisms. It's one of the biggest. It's called a mikvah. Mikvah is the baptismal Mm -hmm. pool. Of, of Judaism and yeah. uh, you could baptize hundreds of people and people don't realize if you read the gospel of John when Jesus is baptized he goes into Judea and baptizes more people than John was even baptizing in the north so they team up for at least half a year it's like you take the north I'll take the south and we'll meet you in the middle and then John gets arrested and Herod realizes, oh, boy, we got to stop this guy. And then Herod tries to get Jesus. And Jesus is warned, Herod's going to try to kill you. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And he lives in Sepphoris, right, where Jesus grew up. So Jesus knows him real well. He grew up probably working in that town as a stonemason. And so uh, just being down there at, at uh, it's called Suba, S-U-B-A, and we excavated there for five years and cleared that cave out. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, I, I'm convinced that uh, that's that's the cave of John the Baptist, where you know where he grew up. So you got to picture I have a these question. boys. I, yeah, I have a question about that yeah. cave, though. Sure. Is there is there not a place in the cave where it it looks like there's a place where you could put your foot? Yes. Yes. And it's what, really interesting. It's carved into bedrock. What was the point of that? Was that part of a cleansing, or I mean, the best I, we I, can, we, you know, there are followers of John the Baptist today. People don't know that uh-huh. they're called Mandians. They're in Iraq. I've been to Harvard. We had a conference at Harvard a few years ago, and they flew in. We flew them in to meet with us. They showed us. <laughs> In the Charles River, they baptized and showed us how they did it. Oh, it was amazing. It, it, you know, kind of reproduced because they have kept their traditions. And they fled uh, during after the Roman Revolt. They fled the country, and they revered John the Baptist as their leader. And they didn't get in with Jesus, and some of them even negative on Jesus. But I think that's more later. But mm-hmm. anyway... They have rituals in which you anoint the right foot with oil as part of your baptism. And it's the idea of the foot is you step forward with your foot in life, like to walk in newness of life. Paul talks about you're raised in baptism and you walk in newness of life. So this is not a ritual that passed into the church. It could have. But you can see how powerful it would be. Let's say you're baptized. You come up out of the water. It's a burial, immersion. You're given your new white robe, which is your new life. And then you put your right foot into this little basin. And you pour. It's perfectly carved. It'll only fit the right foot. If you put your left foot, you can't get it in. And they pour the oil and probably had some prayer like, go forth in righteousness as you step through the pathways of life or something like that. Now, we don't know if that was done in the time of Jesus and John, 
because this cave was used for the next two or three hundred years by the followers of, of uh, you know, Byzantine Christians and so forth, were revering John. But that's our interpretation. We're not sure, uh, but why would you have a carved... Uh, there was one archaeologist, I remember, I won't name him, but he, he said, oh, I can find rocks like that in any cave that look like a foot. And I said, name one. <laughs> Because so I'm did, so you, did you uh, the, did you put your foot in in the in the hole? In the it's like a, were, a were, it looks. Were, were you, there, yeah, were you able to put your foot in that? Oh really? Oh, yeah, yeah, and then there's a little basin thing to the left of it with the channel, so that when you pour the oil, it runs onto the foot. See, so oh, we wow. think it was some, and that would be how you're anointed, not with your head because that would make you the Messiah, but with your foot, which makes you a humble servant, you see, because the foot is the service, walking forth in service. Now, that's possible. I can't prove that because you can't, you know how archaeology is. You try to interpret the artifacts. We have a book coming. Well, well, Shimon Gibson, who is my partner at the cave, digging my archaeological colleague and co-director, he has a book that people can look up called The Cave of John the Baptist. It's in print, and it tells all of this. And we're speculating. We don't know for sure. But we do know that John and Jesus were very close, and they are not rivals. And when when Jesus hears John is beheaded, he is devastated. And if you read in the Gospels, it says, he said to the disciples, let's go away to a lonely place. And he wanted to go... Uh, away and just think about this and I think what he realized was if you really oppose these people they're going to kill you and he started telling his disciples from that day forward you can actually read it in Mark says from that day forward he said the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and he started saying this might not be the triumphant thing you think because remember he believed the kingdom of God had to come without violence he never gathered arms he's the only revolutionary at the time that didn't get you know hundreds of people together gather arms and then attack the romans he believed that the kingdom would come by people beginning to well basically the will of god being done on earth as it is in heaven and he did he did a beachhead of that by gathering together slaves and free and women and poor and rich and people diseased and he started to create for the first time a kind of a egalitarian community i call it the jesus entourage can you imagine what it must have looked like all these people together with kids and women and children and everybody mixed and and he got criticized for that you you're eating with sinners these people are you know, you're not with the church people. And he's like, no, because this is the kingdom. You know, So I think he pioneered the way, and he said the kingdom of God is within you. That's the most important thing he ever said about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is oh, within yeah. you. He said, don't go but, here or there to look for the kingdom. You know, that's what everybody's thinking. Like, the king will come with an army, and he'll set up the kingdom, and then you'll hear the news. Oh, the kingdom's set up. Go down and meet the king. And he goes, no, it's not like that. It's here right now. He said, if I, by the finger of God, cast out evil spirits, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he declared the kingdom of God as present. Oh, yeah. Well, what, what, what got me was, I mean, in, in a couple of places, uh, when they asked him, you know, how do we pray? And he said, as John taught us, and then he said something that to me was so profound, um, and, and I think a lot of people don't see it. He said, when you pray, go to a dark place by yourself, and that's yes. where you talk to God. And, and right. you know, and he basically was saying, you know, if you do it out loud, you're doing it for show. If you do it that's in right. private, and, then you're really communicating with God. And how many of us has, has sat in a church or a synagogue, and particularly churches where people do these long, extemporaneous extra I can't say it. What am I trying to say? Say it for me. <laughs> extemporaneous? Yeah, extemporaneous oh, prayers. And you, you feel like they're talking to the people, not God, right? <laughs> they, well, it's a, it, to, me, to me, it's all a preamble. It's, it's mm-hmm. not necessary. And, and I mean, it, to me, it, it's all of these prayers are wonderful and beautiful, and and the Psalms are wonderful and beautiful. But if you're going to teach someone or help someone find a way to communicate directly with God, you know, they do it in in private, in the dark, talking to God, and not not reciting something that is from memory, but rather... Exactly. It sounds like meditation, which you could also, you know, it sounds a lot like meditation. Go to a quiet place sit quietly, be comfortable, uh, try to empty your mind of extraneous thoughts and just uh, suddenly, you know, begin to try to connect to the ground of your being, uh, the Heavenly Father, as he called God, and then the idea that in him we live and have our being, and he's not very far from each one of us. Those are two of the things he taught so that he knows the hairs of your head and so forth. And uh, he, she, it, you know, used the masculine, but God knows that, you know, he taught this intimacy that is so hard for people to believe because they look at the world and they see the billions of people and all the confusion. And yet even our supercomputers can keep up with trillions of bits of information in a second, you know, know all of it. And so the idea that the force of all forces, which is my definition of God, the ultimate force, God most high, uh, is intimately connected to all of us because we actually spring from God. You know, we have our being. In him we live and have our being is my favorite uh, expression for that. And so, yes, every thought, every uh, desire is, is, is connected to God. And that's what he wanted people to, to realize, uh, to get in touch with that, that intimacy. And he always said, just, your, your yeah. fa- father knows before you even ask. Yeah. So it's not I, like no one had ever taught this, but he did teach it. Um, well, I, I think also the, the, the thing that most people don't realize is that, that they were they were Jewish. They were they were absolutely Jewish in faith and and that um, there was no intention at all to create another 
aspect of the religion. It just, uh, I, I, I think, right. you know, I think he would, he'd be horrified. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I tell my students when I start my, I teach a course on the historical Jesus that is basically a lot of what's in the book. Uh, the Jesus dynasty, and I say the first day, just jokingly, kind of, I do kind of a shtick with them, and I get up and go, let's see, we're starting, Jesus, Jesus, yeah, that's, okay, we know who we mean, you know, there's Elvis, there's Madonna, there's people, you know, <laughs> we know him by one name, Jesus. <laughs> so we got that, I said, now, what was his religion? What? And I got a class of 50 people, they're sitting there, and I say, uh, let's see, was, was he like maybe Muslim or you know, I know I'm teaching the class, but I, I have a lot on my mind. You know, I get mixed up. Was he Buddhist? Was he Muslim? Uh, maybe he, uh, what was he? Was he Christian? Uh, maybe it was Hindu. Then I, then I, you know, they're all laughing like, come on, Dr. Tavery. <laughs> what are you doing? And then I go, wait, I got it. He kept the Sabbath. He kept Passover. He he ate kosher. <laughs> And uh, he, he cited the Shema, Hero is, O the Lord our God is one, which we have all uh-huh. those things. And uh, I think that's Judaism. And they're all laughing at that point. <laughs> and I go, you know why I'm doing that? Because for some people, when you say Jesus the Jew, they can't stand it. Because they, no, but he, he, he became a Christian, right? No. What do you mean he worshipped himself and became a Christian? So, yeah, he, if you read the prophets, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, that's the religion of Jesus. He's trying to reform the corruptions that had developed within the Jewish faith by certain groups, not all, but certain leaders that wanted power and were corrupt. And uh, it has to do with money and all kinds of corruption, especially the Sadducees who ran the temple. They were just out for power and glory. Oh, yeah. And, but the kingdom of God is a dynamic concept. And I have, uh, you know, when we did Paul uh, last year, we talked about already, not yet. So if you ask yeah. me, uh, is the kingdom here, according to Jesus? I'm not, you know, I like to make it more historical like according to jesus what is the kingdom here i would say already not yet already not yeah yet. <laughs> and it's so important because it leaves that eschatological apocalyptic openness like it's already here it's here but it's not yet here well of course it's well, not I yet think... here because we have all the suffering and evil and so forth but whenever people take up that way of loving your enemies, of turning the other cheek, of standing for peace, justice, righteousness, speaking the truth, you know, the kind of pure religion that he set forth, then you see the kingdom beginning to blossom. And it's not a religion, really. It's a, a, a no. kind of a orientation of life. It's a philosophy. Mm-hmm. And don't you think that, that though when Jesus and God uh, John the Baptizer got together. Didn't they really have a feeling that it was going to happen, like in their lifetime? And I think and, they you did. Know, yeah, 
we call it apocalypticism. Uh, there's every indication that they did think, they said the time is at hand, the kingdom is near. Now, you could say, well, the inauguration of the beginning was near, but it, I think it's more than that. They probably did think that. Everybody thought that at that time. It had to do with certain chronologies of the book of Daniel about the four kingdoms, mm-hmm. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and now you're in the fourth kingdom, Rome. And uh, later under Nero, this is after Jesus, but, you know, he's the beast that has the number 666. That works out to say in Hebrew, Nero and Kaser, Nero Caesar. So they were thinking it would come in the first century. Jesus said this generation will not pass until the kingdom of God comes. So he's expecting it. I like, you know, I dedicate the book to Albert Schweitzer. And it was published uh-huh. exactly 100 years. I didn't plan this. I noticed it uh, and put it in the preface or in the dedication. 100 years after Schweitzer, 1906, uh, the quest for the historical Jesus. And I published mine in 2006, and I dedicated it to him. And what he says on the last page of his book, and uh, to me it's the best expression ever, he said, Jesus threw his shoulder against the wheel of history and pushed with all his might and it lunged backward and crushed him. And I just find that chilling because I think that's exactly what happened. But what Schweitzer did, as you know, then is he gave up his professorship at the university of Basel where he was a new Testament scholar like I am and went and got his, MD, medical degree, and went to Africa and spent the rest of his life trying to live like Jesus, you know, helping the poor, the sick, the lonely. And I think uh, it's a call, the uh, following Jesus. You know, I'm the historian, but you're getting me to talk a little bit more about my own faith now. If someone says, <laughs> are you a Christian? I would say not a very good one because I'm not on the cross right now. I'm not opposing all there are probably a lot of things I should speak out on, you know, how we sometimes get fearful about speaking truth to power. But there are people doing that in a wonderful way. And whether they name the name of Jesus, there's a great story in the Gospels where the disciples come up and say, Lord, we saw a man and he was doing works in your name, but he's not with us. And he goes, so? He who is not against us is for us. Like the whole idea of the movement is not all stick in one thing, but spread the idea. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, all these things about are you a Muslim, are you a Christian, are you a Jew, are you this, are you that? What card do you carry in your wallet? What's your ID? Uh, He never said what he was other than uh, a follower of God. So. I think he had a universalism that appeals to people all over the world. Um, And in that sense, the kingdom of God, well, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And uh, in the sense of all the things that have come from him, I know Christianity has done a lot of really bad things, but certainly not in keeping. I mean, we should go by St. Francis, not Charlemagne, right? (laughs) If we're looking for a I think what's what is getting to me is that um, Christianity has become 
a corporate entity and 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 while it's founded on the it's founded on Jesus it's not really Jesus ish to to be Jesus ish you, you have to go back to before uh Paul and mm-hmm. and one wonders what would have happened had Paul not had his vision and had I think this movement still would have spread, but it would have spread more slowly. And and yep. you know the the disciples were sent out to the Christian areas. I mean, after Jesus passed, um, mm-hmm. they were you know it wasn't just Paul talking to the Gentiles. The others were as well, and everybody got mm-hmm. killed. I mean, nobody died. Yep. You know, if you are if you are in this movement, you know you will not die of old age. That's right. Yeah, I think John might be the only one that supposedly died of old age. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to know. I mean, uh, we have, to, you know, you and I talked about Paul for a couple of hours uh, in that show last year, and on the one hand, he did really formulate and organize a kind of a structure for Christianity that people like Augustine and Aquinas and Luther. And all the reformers, you know, basically looked to Paul. I would certainly call him the founder of Christianity, not Jesus, would be Paul. Mm-hmm. If he hadn't come along, I don't think it would have died out. I think there was enough of a dynamic uh, seed planted that it would have spread. But it doesn't surprise me that it got institutionalized and forgotten and corrupted because it happened with the Buddha, too, with Gautama. You know, we think about what we can recover of his life. And if you had asked him, uh, well, what religion are you? Well, first of all, Hinduism isn't even a religion. You know, when you really study it, it's a, a certain way of thinking about the cosmos. And Buddhism is not a religion per se, but it is, and if you know what I mean. And so, yeah. But the but within three four hundred years, you had Buddhism with Buddhist temples and all these doctrines developing. Same with Christianity. Same with Islam, with Sunni and Shia killing each other. And I think any great religious teacher, unfortunately, seems not able to keep the followers to the original, more pure reform message, it all gets encrusted in, you know, subsequent generations with a kind of, uh, what would you say, uh, need to formulate, organize, say who's in, who's out, what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down, you know, to make it kind of like an exclusive thing that, that you join and then, you hate other people that are not part of it. And yet it goes diametrically against the teachings of Jesus, who remembered yeah. the good Samaritan. Well, they hated the uh-huh. Samaritans. And he doesn't use that term, good Samaritan. That's just what we call it. But he gives a story to show. The question was, who is my neighbor? He said, the great commandment is love your neighbor as yourself after loving God. And somebody pipes up, probably Sounds kind of like a smart ass. Well, who's my neighbor? You know, who are you saying I should love? And he says, well, let me tell you a story. You know, a man went down uh, 
on the road to Jericho, and he was beaten up, robbed, left for dead, and a religious priest came by, and a Levite came by, and they passed him. And then a Samaritan came and helped him, and he goes, who do you think was the neighbor? And they just are silent, like, ooh. I think uh, one of them said, I guess the guy who showed him mercy says, go do likewise. Okay, that's not Uh a church. That's not a religion. The Samaritans had their own religion. Then he's talking to a Samaritan woman. I love that story in John where he's talking to a woman. First of all, men do not sit at a well one-on-one alone and talk to women in that culture. It's not only risque, it's just not done. It's just (laughs) not proper. You know, women go to the well to draw water. Men don't walk up and sit and talk to them while they're doing their household duties. But then it's a beautiful story. If, if your listeners have read it, they've got to read it. And in, in, I think it's chapter four of John, because he plays around with her in such a beautiful way. He, uh, she says, "Well, you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but our people say you should worship at Mount Gerizim. What's right?" And see, she wants to do a religious argument, like everybody, like what religion is right. And guess what he says, if you remember, he says, those who worship the Father worship in spirit and in truth, not in this mountain or Jerusalem. For a Jew to say that you don't have to worship in Jerusalem in that day and time, that's what everybody would say, oh, if you're a Jew, you got to go to Jerusalem three times a year. He says, no, you worship in spirit and in truth anywhere you are. And then he plays around right there. He says, uh, why don't you go call your husband? <laughs> and she says, uh, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, that's true. Of course, you've had, what is it? I think he says, you've had four men, but the one you're with now is not your husband, so you spoke the truth there, girl. <laughs> and he's not condemning her at all. He's just trying, and she goes, are you a prophet? <laughs> so the disciples walk up, and they're amazed that he's talking to a woman and he he had said to her earlier uh give me first thing he said i left this out he walks up and he goes give me some give me a drink i'm thirsty and she says well do you have a lytle you know because people would carry these with them for water mm-hmm. and and he he said no i'll drink out of yours and she goes really like uh, you want me to dip this right now and hand it to you and you're going to touch your lips on you know, the ladle that I use? And you're, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. You guys hate me. So look look at the barriers he just breaks there, the gender barrier, the religion mm-hmm. barrier, the cultural barrier. Uh, he did this all the time with the poor. You know, the three things are what? Race, gender, and, and money, you know, power. Yeah. These are the things that divide us today. He constantly talked about breaking down these barriers, so the disciples come up and they go, I can't believe he's talking to a Samaritan woman. What are you doing? You know, <laughs> kind of like they're not they're not in the program yet. And then yeah. he basically, they go, well, uh, we got some food. They went into the village to buy food for lunch. And they go, we got your lunch. Are you ready? He goes, I've actually got food to eat that you don't know anything about. And they go, did somebody give him food? <laughs> <laughs> That he's saying that the conversation with this woman was his food. Oh, I love it. I love that story. Let me well, tell you, you know, my favorite story about okay. women. And then 
because it goes with this. It's the Mary and Martha story. This is my favorite. You want to see women's lived 2,000 years ago in a, in a uh-huh. patriarchal society? He's teaching at uh, Mary and Martha are two sisters, well-known in the Gospels, and they're at their house. Uh-huh. And Martha's in the kitchen, you know, cooking up the biscuits, so to speak, you know, baking and getting things ready for the men. And the men are in the other room where men go, and Jesus is teaching. And Mary slips in and sits at the feet of Jesus with the men. And Martha says, what is she doing in there? You know, she needs to be in the kitchen cooking. So she actually interrupts and says, could you tell Mary to come back in and help me with all the serving that we got to do for your whole group? It's a lot of work. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. You've, Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. And I guess he's almost saying, you know, even if the dinner burnt, it wouldn't really matter that much. But a woman belongs at the feet of the teacher as much as a man. So here we had uh-huh. Harvard, Yale, William and Mary, Princeton, all male schools when they were founded, no women allowed, no co-ed education until fairly recent times. Women couldn't vote until the last century, as you know, and and now all the women's rights that we're now trying to advocate in our day and time. And here Jesus is saying, yeah, women should sit with the men and learn, and they have brains, and I'm sure women appreciate this, but you cannot find many teachers of the ancient world that took this position on women. Do you remember when Plato tells the death of Socrates? And as much as I love Socrates, and I love the dialogues of Plato, but remember Socrates tells his wife, uh, go home, because she was bawling and crying, you know, kind of like women are hysterical. You just need to go home. i got to talk to the men now about the philosophy uh-huh. things. Remember that? He sends her away. But yeah. Uh, but you know, and, I I think one one thing that is that is painfully clear is that <clears throat> women aren't given their fair share of time in the Bible at all. And no. and it's you know, they they will say, Well, there were women there and that's it. And mm-hmm. and the reality is that some of the women that travelled with Jesus were financing his movement. Yes. You know, very important. And it, it's in Luke chapter 8, and Mary Magdalene is named, and Joanna, and Susanna, and Joanna is the wife of Herod's chief of staff, Herod Antipas, high-placed women following Jesus. Now imagine what the husbands thought. You mean you're <laughs> going to go hear that teacher again? You know, and so he, uh, Mary Magdalene is the great example because you know about the discovery of the gospel of Mary Magdalene, uh, much, uh, you know, that yeah. was just about a hundred or so years ago. And uh, even though it's probably not absolutely historically accurate, nobody thinks it is, it does show one thing very clearly, and that is the male disciples were jealous of the closeness spiritually that Jesus had with Mary Magdalene and that Mm -hmm. she he taught her and we have that in the story I just told you know that she's sitting at his feet Uh, I think Mary uh, of Bethany and Mary Magdalene are the same woman it it gets a little garbled in the stories but there's good reason to think they're the same 
but otherwise you have two Marys learning, which is fine. Maybe there were. But uh, you think about it, uh, that idea of her being the leader and the male disciples kind of uh, a little bit jealous about that. And you get that in some of the later Gospels that uh, mention Mary rather prominently. The Gospel of Philip is another one that was discovered. Uh, And some of the things with the Nag Hammadi discoveries in Egypt, 1945. So, yeah, they're given short shrift. And yet, you know, I call it breadcrumbs. You start looking through and you find these little breadcrumbs that show you what is really going on. There's enough left behind, like James we mentioned. He's the leader when a decision is made. The biggest decision in the early church, Acts 15, James stands up and makes the decision. So that's like a little crumb that's left. And you go, oh, James, and then you follow that. And Uh otherwise you get lost. And then Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and then she's in the burial of Jesus. She's supervising the burial of Jesus. Well, why would she do that unless she's very, very prominent and important? So these women are supporting Jesus. And everybody wants to talk about, you know, something romantic or sexual. or And that might have been. Who knows? But the point is not, you know, were they together physically, whether they were or not. But the point is the connection that they seem to have in terms of uh, spirituality that is reflected in these texts. Well, yeah, it seems, it, it felt as though um, there was a an intellectual, psychological link there that, that you know, um, it, it, it didn't feel sexual, but it sounded like, it felt like a profound love, kind of like a, a sharing of, of a level of energy that that goes beyond the physical was definitely there. And I can see how how some of the disciples may have been very jealous because there was a synchronicity. There was a commonality of thought and direction and purpose. And she felt very very strange, but also very wise. And, and of course, Jesus' mother as well, Um, a very intelligent lady. Um, well, she and, she and, had to be extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Well, seven kids, yeah. I mean, exactly. For 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 forget the spiritual stuff for a minute. Seven kids, and and that 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 the boys really did follow Jesus and believe in him and believe in his. I think one of the the. I don't know if it was an aside that he made or what, but it's so true, and, and it it's almost feels as though there was a sense of frustration when he said something like, a prophet is never recognized in his own time or in his own mm-hmm. neighborhood or something like that. Right, his own so, country, you know, village or yeah. whatever. Yeah, he'd gone back to Nazareth, and they'd rejected him, and he... Just familiarity. You think, hey, we knew this. Who's the, the Jesus, son of Joseph? Oh yeah, we knew him. We watched him grow up. He, he couldn't be anybody. And uh, that's just human nature, you know, to think the person in your family can't be all that great because it kind of puts you down. <laughs> you say, well, our, yeah. our village couldn't be important. Uh, 
but it's just probably human nature. It's a, a truism, I think, that he. But I think some of the there's a passage in Mark where it says his it, it says his relatives uh, tried to pull him away because they thought he was crazy or out of his mind. But I don't think that means Mary. This you know these are this is a village Nazareth. It's a small village. From the excavations, it looks like it might have been built around a spring with maybe 200 people. And now it's the largest oh, wow. Arab city in, in Israel or Palestine. It's actually technically in what's called the occupied territory today. But it's a large metropolis, and everybody's heard of it because of Jesus. You know, let's go to Nazareth. Uh-huh. But it's just huge, congested with churches and so forth. But when he co- goes back to that little village, uh, the townspeople turn against him. And the Greek says his own, you know, his, uh, so it could have been relatives, it could be cousins, it could be people that were jealous. Uh, It took a while for everybody to come around. But I don't think it means that his inner family rejected him. Um, Oh, no. They might not have fully, remember, they're younger, he's the oldest. And he, Uh when... When Joseph dies, he takes charge of the family. He becomes, in effect, the father of the family or the leader of the family because we have references. It'll say, and Jesus took his mother and brothers and went to Capernaum, you know, where Peter's house is, like I mentioned earlier. Well, why Uh does it say Jesus took his mother and brothers? You wouldn't say that if there was a father around. So... uh, uh, he's he's the responsible one. Now, the biggest interpret, misinterpretation that I know of, and I, I grew up with it, uh, you would have grown up with it if you've been exposed to Christianity, and that is that when Jesus died, he turned the care of his mother over to John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman. And everybody just says that John's the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it never says it was John. It's just a tradition. It's pretty late. It it comes much later. And I argue in the book that it's James, of course, that you yeah. it's the official passing of the Jewish older son. I'm dying now. Take care of mother. And he says, Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And to think that James would have care of the church, but he's not worthy to take care of his own mother on Mount Zion where they lived. That's just ridiculous. And a lot of people have accepted that argument now that I've made it. I've seen uh, people accept it. But some people, they go, well, I thought the beloved disciple was John. Well, nothing against John. First of all, they get their Johns mixed up because there's two Johns. There's John the Elder who yeah. is the sweet old man who goes around saying, love your neighbor, love your, love one another, love one another. He lives in Ephesus. But John, the son of Zebedee, he and his brother James, this is the other James, the fisherman James. There's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're all two sets of brothers. They're fiery guys. And we have two stories from them. And both times they want to like, one time they want to burn up a village because it didn't accept them. They say, Lord, can we call fire down and burn those people? And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are. He, pretty sharp rebuke. 
you know, like you, you apparently don't even know what this is about. So that's yeah. not the guy that he turned his mother. Nothing against John. He's one of the 12, but they're not perfect. And the other thing is he and his brother asked to sit at the right and left hand. Remember, like they're pushing the others aside and they go, well, when we come to the kingdom, can my brother and I be at the right and left hand? And Jesus just kind of looks down at the ground and he just says, I picture him shaking his head and saying, you know, those positions <laughs> will be for those God chooses. You don't walk up and choose it and push people out like who is the greatest. And then he gets, yeah. remember, he takes the little child and he says, yeah. you really want to be at the right and left hand? Then be like this child, become humble like a child. In, in that culture, children ate after the parents. We really reversed that because we worship <laughs> our children now. And I know yeah. we did, we did that with our children. Oh, you want to eat here, honey? Here's your food. We take care of you. But back in those days, like my parents grew up, I think it was more the adults are the main thing, and the children need to kind of be quiet and play. They're humble, you know. They don't yeah. rule the house. So, so he said, become as a child, and then. He also said, become a servant of all, become a servant. And in one text, he used the word slave. Can you imagine? Be, become a slave to all if you want to be great. Well, this is such a reversal uh, to say that to become great, you become a servant. And it's one of the great teachings of Jesus. So I don't believe that uh, John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, or James, his brother, in the two stories we have, are the ones uh-huh. to whom Jesus turned over the movement. I know the names get confusing. So, And also, he lays on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. That's something a kid brother would do, you know. That uh, was something else. The, the, mm-hmm. Now that you've brought up the Last Supper and, mm-hmm. and how the Eucharist supposedly is um, a reflection of that, um, you have some very good reasons why the Eucharist is not a copy of the Last Supper. Yeah, it has been. Uh, it's been really changed early on by Paul, I think, uh-huh. where he says that drinking the cup, the, the wine, is the blood, and eating the bread is the body and you eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. And, of course, that's essential to Christianity. So it's if I even say this, I realize many, many people get upset or offended or whatever, and I don't mean it that way. But we can now show that the earliest Eucharist service was not – it was actually upholding – a kind of vegetarian or plant-based idea that the animal sacrifices uh, were not the way to come close to God. And the prophets, of course, say this repeatedly. God does not want sacrifice. Jesus said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, quoting Hosea 6. And so what probably happened is he took the bread and he says, this is the body uh, of the lamb. And he took the wine and said, this is the blood of the lamb. This is my blood. In other words, we don't need to slaughter an animal anymore to be close to God. 
And that was probably Bruce Chilton is the one who first suggested this. And uh, he, he wrote an article about it and he, a book about it. And I, I think it's very compelling. In other words, the disciples are saying, should we go get the lamb? Is it time to bring the lamb? Because they're going to like kill the lamb right there. And he goes, you see this bread? This is the body, the flesh. And you see this cup? This is the blood. We're not going to we're not going to do that this year. Uh, we're we're changing it, and um, that's the understanding that the earliest Christians had. Now, how do we know that? Because we have surviving a document, not in the New Testament. It's called the Didache. It was found in the 1890s by a priest at Mount Athos, which is the monastery in Greece. And it's it dedicate means teaching, the teaching of the twelve apostles. And it says when you celebrate Eucharist, uses the word Eucharist, do it this way, and it says exactly what I told you. Take the bread and it represents the body of all of us together, and the wine represents the vine and the blessings of wine and bread, very much like if you've ever been to a Jewish Sabbath service, you know, you bless the bread and you bless the wine and then you begin the meal. So mm-hmm. he was essentially uh, calling them to a kind of a nonviolent commemoration of bread as a symbol of our oneness because you break the one loaf. That's really important. You have the one round loaf. Everybody eats a piece yeah. of it. And then you all share the cup. And that would be the joy. The wine is joy. And so you share the joy and the love as you pass the cup around. And I think they probably did this. You would all drink out of the same cup, and you would break the one bread. And that was the original Eucharist. But then it became sacrificial later, I think. Well, I think the other thing, misconception, is that, that that last supper was not Passover supper. And that's right. A lot of it was, a lot of people. That's where people get confused. It, it was the night before Passover, and right. uh, I've written a lot about this. I covered in the book, and also my, I have a blog, JamesTabor.com, so it's easy to remember. And if anybody looks that up, it's got a good search feature on it, and you can uh, type in. Uh, you know, was the Last Supper a Passover meal? And I give all the reasons that it wasn't. It was probably a Thursday, uh, I mean a Wednesday night when they ate the Last Supper. And then on Thursday, Jesus died, not Friday. And then it was a Sabbath. Friday was a Sabbath. It's the Passover Sabbath. Mm-hmm. See, Passover is a Sabbath. It doesn't matter what day of the week it falls. Sabbath just means a, a a day of rest, sacred rest, where you're not supposed to do your normal activities. So when they buried Jesus on Thursday, right before sunset, they ate the Passover that night. So he was dead when they ate the Passover. And uh, he said, I really wanted to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, but I will no longer eat it until I eat it in the kingdom of God. And so it wasn't the Passover, um, according to the chronology, as I understand it. And John, really, the Gospel of John knows, makes it very clear. If you look at John 12, 
It says, now before the Passover, Jesus sat down with his disciples at a meal. And it says uh-huh. before the Passover. So there's not much doubt about it. But everybody thinks it's the Passover, and then they get into the blood and the lamb and splashing the blood on the doorpost, and that covers our oh, yeah. sins. And that comes from Paul. That is in Paul, 1 Corinthians. But I don't think it's in the uh, in the Gospels. So that I know that's a, a lot for people to take if they're, you know, people have their own piety and their I respect their devotion, but a Jew mm-hmm. is not going to drink blood even symbolically. Uh, this no. is done in pagan religions, Mithras and Isis religions. You uh, you can drink a cup of wine. And the idea is you're drinking the blood of the God and the power of the God will come in you by drinking his blood or her blood. And we find well, that in Greek it, magic or papyri, for example. I, I think well, I put that it, in the book. Yeah, if it had been the Passover dinner, it would have been unleavened bread. It wouldn't have been a loaf of bread. That's right. Absolutely. It's called artos in Greek, which does not mean matzo. Matzo is a special word. Yeah, he just, it was, uh, I'll tell you what it is, it's its the farewell meal. It's a very sad meal where everybody sits together and he says, uh, tonight's the night, you know, I'm going to be arrested. And he knew the plot that was taking place. He was aware of what was going on. But he wanted that final he, night. Wasn't uh, he also still at the very end? holding out hope of some sort because of prophecy. I know that, that they've when they looked over prophecy and, and the fact that John the Baptist had been killed with a sword, that that he might be pierced but wouldn't die. So that there was, even hanging on the cross, there was a, a part of him that was thinking, you know, well, he said, why have, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, you know, he really, there was a part of him that believed that he would be saved rather than having to die. Yeah, so, yeah that's that wheel um, of history lunging back and crushing him. I think what what you read in the prophecies, Psalm 22 especially, as he quotes that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the idea that you will, you will suffer but God will then redeem you uh, through that suffering somehow. And mm-hmm. I think he he probably didn't know, but he 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 maybe had once John was dead. This is my view, Barbara. I'm not sure of any of this because we don't know. But once he saw John yeah. was dead, then he quotes that night at Gethsemane that very night. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I think he began to wonder because John had not been saved. He probably thought John will be arrested, but he'll be free, you know, and we're going to go set up the kingdom and so forth. Um, See, it would have been a peasant revolt if, if he had lived and if it had gone maybe as he hoped. Can you imagine maybe... uh, Ah. I don't know, let's just say 20,000 people going down to Jerusalem, not with arms, and saying, uh, we we want a new 
world. We want a new order. We want the temple to be a house of prayer. We want the corrupt priests to be removed. We want to live peaceably. We want the poor to be taken care of and so forth. That's as much of a threat as anything to a stratified culture. It would be that way today with people who are rich don't want to lose their money and people that are high class don't want to mix with people they consider to be inferior to them. Um, and he, he probably had hoped that there could be that kind that kind of a revolution, you know, almost like the velvet glove idea, you know, yeah. that was used during but, the but, but the, re- the reality the reality is the reality though, had seemed, they yeah. had they tried that they would have been slaughtered. Slaughtered, absolutely. Rome is and I think he began to realize that. Uh he does say that night another thing. He said, uh don't you know, you know, Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, uh-huh. and Jesus heals his ear and says, put away your sword. Famous. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that is such an important statement in the Gospels. It's in Matthew. And what he's saying there is, if this revolution ever comes, it will not come that way. And we still haven't learned this today that we think violence will somehow bring about reconciliation. If you can just smash the people and show them who's boss, that somehow they won't resent you and you could have peace. And it never works. You just get them uh, forming their own power and trying to overthrow you. And so he, I think he began to realize toward the end, and he says, I could call 12 legions of angels. Now, whether it would have come, I don't know. But he, he had faith <laughs> that God, yeah, God was with him. <laughs> but the Romans would have just laughed that off, like, go ahead and call them. You know, we got three legions up in Antioch. And you know what yeah. happened to every single – there were 11 messiahs that the historian Josephus, who lives in the first century, he records 11 other aspirants to the throne of David, including Jesus. And yeah. uh, that's what happened to all – 11 of them, they were beheaded, crucified, or otherwise killed with the sword, every single one of them. So uh, he's no exception there. What makes him different is he didn't call for the violent revolution. And it's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, everybody's heard it, but people sit down and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, You know, it's collected together in three chapters, kind of the core teaching of Jesus. And this is that Q document that I talk about, that early teaching of Jesus. And that's not a religion. It's a way of life. You've already quoted it. When you pray, go into a closet and shut the door. Uh When you fast, don't tell people, I'm fasting today. You know, it's every, oh, my favorite one is when you give. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And by oh, the yeah. way, in the, Didi- in the Didache, you know, I told you it uh-huh. had some of the early teachings that aren't in the Gospels. We have quite a few yeah. things of Jesus that aren't in the Gospels. And one of them is even more, in- it's very similar. It says, let your money sweat in your hand until you know to whom you're giving it. <laughs> I love that. That's got, a good here, one. I got a I got a $50 bill here. Wait, hold that in your hand, and wait till it's wet with sweat. 
because it looks like you're just giving to be seen. Like, here, I'm giving $50. Put my name on a plaque. Register me so I'll get credit. Yeah. And every churches do that. Synagogues do that. That's how you raise money. People yeah. always say, well, we'll have the platinum level and the gold level and the silver <laughs> level. I'll publish your names. And Jesus said, well, actually, you should do it anonymously. And people, I'm not going to give a million dollars anonymously that I wouldn't get credit for uh-huh. it. But then I don't funny. have a write-off. Yeah, he, he, he's very funny because he says, you already have your reward then. Go ahead. Do it. Yeah, you'll get credit. Go ahead, and that'll be your credit. But you won't get yeah. any credit with God because you already got your credit. Yeah, <laughs> so. you can't double dip. Um, yeah. Before 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 our time is up, um, I, I would love for you to, to go a little bit about the the, the possible father of Jesus and and how you chase down a tombstone. Okay. Um, Well, it turns out that we do have a name, Pantera, and it comes Mm -hmm. up pretty early on in Sepphoris, which is right by where Jesus grew up. So the fact that it's a local tradition, and it's in the rabbinic writing called the Tosefta, Josefta just means additions. It's not the Talmud. It's earlier than the Talmud. It's between the Mishnah and the Talmud. And it's like other things that they collected, you know, the rabbis of that period. And they tell stories, and they tell three different stories of Jesus. And they're not negative stories. They're positive stories about Jesus. And they call him Yeshua ben Pantera. That's just what – and it's like it's done in passing. You know, like you would say – James, uh, my father's name was uh, LG, E-L-G-I-E, yeah. unusual name. But So you'd say uh, James, son of LG, not James, son of uh, George over here. You know, that yeah. was it. So the way they say it, whereas later people said, oh, they called him Pantera because they're making fun of him, born of a virgin, and it's a corruption of the word Parthenos. Well, Pantera, Parthenos, I don't hear any similarity except the P, do you? So I don't think it, it does not come from Parthenos, Virgin. And it's a name. And we have an ossuary in Jerusalem. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to argue that it's connected to this Pantera. But there is an ossuary in Jerusalem with the name Pantera, Jewish ossuary, which shows Jews use this name in that time. That's why I mentioned that. So anyway, Uh there is a story that's passed on by Celsus, who's a pagan, as we say, a a Greek philosopher, and he's very opposed to Christianity, hates the Christians, and he's arguing with Origen, Origen, the great church father, uh, and uh, he says to Origen, well, I heard from uh, my Jewish sources that Jesus is actually the son of Pantera, who was a Roman soldier. And that's where you get the idea that Pantera was a Roman soldier. It's actually from him, but it's a rumor spreading. Now, these early texts don't say he's a Roman soldier. They just call him Jesus, son of Pantera. So the way I put this together, and again, I don't know, but uh, I did... uh, Discover. I didn't discover it. Actually, I think uh, Adolf Deismann, and he was a German scholar in the 1800s, pointed out 
in his book, Light from the Ancient East, that I bet you love that title, <laughs> Light from the Ancient yeah. East. He showed a, a picture of a tombstone in Germany, and it's a Pantera, and he's from Sidon, which is on the coast of, of uh, Palestine or Israel or the Holy Land. And it's just north of uh, Sepphoris. You know, it would probably, I mean, Jesus travels there. It mentioned, Jesus goes through Sidon. And it actually mentions him entering a house. It doesn't say what house, but it seems like he knows somebody there. But he he goes through there several times, so it's not some remote area. So here's a Roman soldier, and if you start figuring out the dates of when he died and who was the emperor, it was Tiberius and so forth, he fits the chronology, and he's from the land of Israel. or, or he, He's not really from Sidon. He's put into a, reg, a, a regiment, a, a legion. Uh, it's actually smaller than a legion, uh, but it's a, a group of archers that are, are called the Sidonians. So he's not actually from there, but he's from the area. So I wondered whether, uh, if I could find that uh, tombstone, because it was found in 1851, whether it would still be available and so i went to germany and was able to find it and it's, it was in the basement of uh, it's called the Römische museum roman museum on the rhine river where he died and where he was buried and it was found when they were building a railroad this this tombstone his head uh is knocked off so you can't see his face or anything but you can see his body rest of his body and uh He's an archer, and the dates work out very, very closely to the chronology that would fit uh, a young boy about, let's say, if Mary's 15, and he might be, say, 18 or something like that. I'm just guessing. So this is just, Barbara, this is just my speculation of how it might have happened. If he's uh-huh. the son of Pantera and they know the name, they go, you know, he's the son of Pantera. You know, Pantera, that kid that, you know, father of Jesus. Well, there's a, when Herod the Great dies, this is in 4 BC, in March of 4 BC, three revolts break out in the country by these messiahs. One is called Simon, one's called Judas the Galilean, the other's called the Shepherd King, all in one summer. So the summer of 4 BC, you have three revolts. The Romans send down three legions from Antioch under Varus, the famous Varus, who lost the legions under Augustus, remember, where Augustus cries, Varus, Varus, where are my legions? This is later uh-huh. in his career. And he he puts down the revolts, all three of them, and he crucifies 2,000 people, and he burns Sepphoris, the capital city, because it was uh, had revolted, had it had supported Judas the Galilean, and so they took the population, and many of the men they they uh, took away. Uh, and in my speculation is that some of them ended up in the Roman army if they were young and fit and able, uh, they could become 
we would probably call it mercenaries today. And then you uh-huh. have your tour of duty and so forth. So I'm thinking maybe trying to put these two traditions together, how could Jesus' father be a Roman soldier and be a relative from Mary's family and named Pantera? And I think this would uh, be a very good possibility that the boy was taken away and put in the Roman army, and he served all those years. He went to Vienna first. We can trace his career. And then he ended up on the Rhine at, at what's called uh, Bad Kreuznach is where the museum is. It's real close to the Rhine River. And Bingen, B-I-N-G-E-N, if anyone wants to look it up, is where the cemetery was in 1850. So I just began to wonder whether that could maybe be the reason that people go, oh, his father's a Roman soldier. Not that a Roman soldier from outside came in and raped Mary or something like that. I I just don't think that's likely. There, you know, I think no. we would have some record of something like that. So it's my way of trying to put together, you know, what I try to do is like a puzzle. Say, well, this piece, uh-huh. I want to keep the soldier piece, and I want to keep the Pantera as part of the family, and I want to keep Mary as a woman who has the right to be in love with someone, even though the marriage is arranged to an older man. And uh, maybe the parents said, no way, or you, I'm just guessing. If, if I make a movie, I'll put this in because I can do what I want. I have the yeah. parents say respectfully, you know, young lady, that boy has no prospects. We've engaged you to Joseph. He's a wonderful man. He's, you know, 15 years older than you, but he's got a good business. And no, you're not marrying Pantera. I, you might think you're in love, but, you know, you're not going to marry him. And you're going to marry, uh, and then she she uh, is pregnant. And, and it looks like it's all going to fall apart. And then Joseph says, no, we're... Um, I, I think Joseph must have loved her, and he wasn't. Uh, he was able to uh, accept that she had had this uh, pregnancy. But if well, I were writing, I, you know, oh, oh, say, yeah, no, I, 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 I write, realize it's, you know, I, I realize it's. No, it's, you're running out. What of if? Time. What if? What if? if? I, were I am. I am. Jesus, yeah, if I were visiting, if I were filling out Jesus' birth certificate today. I would say father mm-hmm. unknown because I don't know. And, and many Christians oh, yeah. say, well, yeah, it's God. But I do think Jesus had a human father. And it just, you know, that's history. Everybody has a father. And yeah. I, I, I think he was probably a good man. And I bet you Mary told Jesus, you know, he was made fun of. Do you know he's called uh, uh, the B word, the bastard word? Uh, A couple times in the Gospels We weren't born of fornication like you were So the rumor gets out But I bet you anything Mary said to him And I would certainly put this in a film When picture a little kid Maybe 10, 12 years old being made fun of I bet she said Jesus, your father was the best man on earth And don't you ever forget it Your father is a good man you know, I think <laughs> I just I think, I'm imagining I think what what your book did for me was bring a greater richness to the teachings of Jesus 
and and there is a flavor here of love and compassion that um, sometimes I find lacking in other places. So, so you you've given certainly a greater depth to an understanding of Jesus, which is phenomenal. And I can't wait for the book on Mary. I mean, um, <laughs> well, they know, held it right up fast. because of all the political books. Uh, the book is basically ready to go, but they've the the publishers holding it up uh, because they do want it to get the attention that they feel it deserves. And right now, until we can get past all of the political divisions, and as you know, every single person has a book now. Oh yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I, I would not mind a PDF. I mean, I, you know, you've got, you've wet my appetite here because, um, the, <laughs> I, I would promise not to share it, but but course, you know, just yeah. just all of your books put such a greater richness into the people that you write about. You you begin to feel not a relationship with them. You you begin to uh, kind of want to look at their their message a little bit more. I mean, I certainly got to know Paul a lot better, understanding where he was coming from. And and you know uh, and with and with this book, um, you know there's a there's a sweeter side to Jesus that you don't see in other places that that I found compelling, and um, well, you know we. Well, I'm really glad we, that um, we had this time to talk about it, and we're going to talk about the Jesus discovery next. I think what is it in yeah. June and. And that will yeah. allow us, uh, that has a chapter on James and Mary Magdalene, so we'll circle back on, on some of these things, but we'll contextualize them with the Tapio tomb. So okay. that'll be very cool. interesting. So, so so, let's have your website and your blog again before I, ha- before I lose the show. <laughs> okay, it's, it's James Tabor, T-A-B-O-R, no spaces, uh, dot com. So it's easy, jamestabor.com. And that's your one-stop shop if you want to get me. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that. But if you start with that, you pretty well can be in touch. And there's a place to sign up for notifications. We never share emails or use them in any way. But I'm publishing, just started this week, New Year, uh, all of my class materials that I've used for 40 years. I put the Jewish world of Jesus up. Today, yesterday, I put the Roman world of Jesus. Go take a look. Uh, all the materials that I use in my classes, I, I've decided to share with others because so many people say, I wish I could take one of your classes. And I thought, well, there's a way you can do that. And I'm going to begin some YouTube lectures, too, that will be free for people to who want to learn in more depth, you know, have the materials in front of them to study. So Phenomenal. Well, thank you so much for for um, for my messing up times and everything. I so appreciate your time and all of the work that you've done. <laughs> and um, well, Barbara, I will be in touch. You're a pleasure. And and you oh. read the book. That's what I like. I interview. I do a lot of interviews over the years, hundreds of them. And a lot of times you can tell the people don't really read the book, but they look at it. But you read the book, and it does make a difference. 
Well, thank you. It makes a big difference to me too. I learn a lot. Like I like I tell people, I get I I get the wisest people possible, and I get them on the show, and and I don't have to pay them to tutor me for two hours. It's a cool, cool job. <laughs> yeah, and you also do two-hour interviews. Who does that? <laughs> you know, that's over. Nobody does that anymore. So. Oh wow. Well, if I could do Everybody. three, I would, but they won't let me. Okay. But. but Thank you again, and, and I look forward to talking to you some more. And um, thank, thanks, everybody, for listening and sharing your time with us. Um, we'll be back. Um, this is Wednesday. We'll be back on Monday and Tuesday of next week. Please visit us on YouTube. If you like what you see, please share and uh, follow us so, so we know you're out there. Thanks so much again, and good night, everybody.